Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Before you're seated, let's pray together. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts may hear and understand your word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness, to your praise and honor through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're making our way through what I believe to be a very important series for the life of our church. We've been exploring uh, the kind of culture, a church that is committed to the truth of Scripture should exhibit. So, gospel doctrine, gospel culture, we've been using those phrases. Gospel doctrine being the message of divine grace for undeserving sinners. Gospel culture being the shared experience of divine grace by undeserving sinners. And the right, faithful proclamation of gospel doctrine should result in a, in a faithful, loving expression of gospel culture. I use the word should because the key is whether or not that gospel doctrine is being personally appropriated. It is possible for all the right truth to be proclaimed, but unless people are appropriating that truth, unless it's coming into the heart and hearts are being changed, that gospel culture will not form. And so that word appropriation is so important. That's more than just, I understand it with my head and I know how to apply it. It's that the truth of the gospel is changing our hearts. And what that looks like first and continually is repentance. It's the very thing that Kurt prayed about in the congregational prayer. Repentance conviction of sin. It's as the word of God, which is itself living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting to the division of joint and marrow, exposing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As that word sinks deep and sin is exposed and we confess that sin and repentance, not just once, but recognizing that repentance is a way of life. As that happens, the gospel is being appropriated and that gospel culture can truly form in the life of a church. Gospel doctrine must be faithfully proclaimed, but also must be faithfully appropriated in order for gospel culture to form. Now, here at Grace, we have yet to experience the fullness of the kind of gospel culture that the Bible invites us to enjoy. We, we touched on that last week. All the 
transparency, all the vulnerability, all the, all the honesty, all the freedom, all the gentleness, all the joy that is meant to characterize gospel culture. We don't yet have that yet here at Grace. That, that gospel aroma that, that is meant to waft through the relationships in a church in the same way that uh, the aroma of a good meal wafts through the house in which it's being enjoyed. We're not enjoying the fullness of that aroma, not to the degree that Jesus would have us experience now. As fallen people in this place, that is still yet to come. So this morning from 1 John, and in each passage, you know, along the way, next week I'll kind of do a summary of, of where we've been. But, but each of these passages have been kind of taking the lid off so we can see a little bit more of what the Bible invites us to when it comes to this rich gospel culture that must flow from right, sound, faithful proclamation and teaching of gospel doctrine. We've been kind of taking the lid off and looking at what that would mean for us. And, and here in 1 John, we see yet another invitation to deep gospel culture. I titled this sermon, The Fellowship of Sinners. It's a line from Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'll read the quote that, that, uh, that I pulled that line from. But that phrase, the fellowship of sinners, so accurately describes what John is inviting us to here in this passage. So what does that look like? What does it mean? What happens when there's a, a fellowship of sinners? What, what characterizes the fellowship of sinners? And John tells us that, that what we should expect to see in a fellowship of sinners, in a church where the gospel has so taken root in the hearts of the people that, that, that the, not just a natural but a glorious way to describe that church is as a fellowship of sinners. What does that look like? John tells us we would, we would expect to find there a shared commitment to holiness. A shared commitment to holiness expressed as love for God and one another. That's the first thing we should expect to see amongst the fellowship of sinners. A shared commitment to holiness expressed as love for God and one another. The second thing we should expect to see is a shared commitment to confession. Marked by honesty with one another about our sin. A shared commitment to confession marked by honesty with one another about our sin. And then third, a shared enjoyment of the reality of grace secured for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. So I'll repeat those again, but then I'll also repeat them. They're longer points, you know. I'll repeat them on the way through as well. But first, a shared commitment to holiness expressed as love for God and one another. Second, a shared commitment to confession marked by honesty with one another about our sin. And then third, a shared enjoyment of the reality of grace secured for us through the cleansing blood of Jesus. So that's where we're headed. First point, a shared commitment to holiness expressed as love for God and one another. So I'm going to jump back in the passage, but before I do, just a quick Overview reminder: Why did John write this letter? Why do we have First John? Why did it need to be? What was the issue that was going on in the church that needed to be addressed? And and in that church, 
There were a group of people that were rejecting gospel doctrine. Specifically, they were denying the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Denying that he came in the flesh. So they were rejecting gospel doctrine. They themselves were also walking in darkness. Walking in the darkness of their sin. Which, which as you see, if you were to go read the letter, was not just the darkness in terms of wrong comprehension, lack of right knowledge. It was moral darkness. They were walking in sin. So they were walking in the darkness of sin, and they were also, John tells us, claiming to know God and to love God. But in fact, the lie was exposed by their lack of love for other people. So let's look at a couple passages here real quick. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. This is a moral aspect of who God is. He is talking, especially in this passage, as he makes this distinction between walking in darkness, walking in light, and the need to confess our sin He's making a connection between God's moral perfection, his holiness, and our sinfulness. But specifically, the way in which that holiness is to be lived, again, as you look at 1 John as a whole, the way in which that holiness is to be demonstrated is through love. Love for God and love for one another. John presses hard on this issue of love in 1 John. He does say, look down at chapter 2, well, if you have your Bibles open, if not, I'll read it. Chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But as you go through, very next verse, verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And then as you go through the rest of the letter, what Paul is going to, I'm sorry, what John is going to do is put his finger on this issue of love. You say you love God, but there's no love for your brother. And so consequently, you're, you're a liar. The love of God is not actually in you. You say you're obeying the commandments of God. You're not obeying this command to love. And so therefore, the love of God is not in you. You are walking in darkness. That's the issue that is being addressed by John in 1 John. So you have people that were rejecting sound doctrine, Jesus didn't come in the flesh. They, they were putting on a show, oh yeah, we're, we're right with God, but in fact, the lie was exposed by their lack of love. And then they were breaking fellowship. They were actually leaving the fellowship. In chapter 2, verse 19, I'll, I'll read that to you here real quick. Verse 19, Paul says, I'm sorry, John said, they went out from us, for they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. He's referring to this group of people within the fellowship that were breaking fellowship. So they were saying on the one hand, we're rejecting gospel doctrine. They're saying on the other hand, we're actually fine with God. The lie was exposed by their lack of love and they were breaking fellowship, wanting nothing to do with the church as a whole. So what does John call these people to do? He calls them to live holy lives. He calls them to walk in the light. He's speaking to those who, are, who remain. Some have left. Maybe others are considering going with them. And 
John is very clearly and very plainly saying, you must live holy lives. Do not forsake this call to holiness. Walk in the light, John says, as he is in the light. So again, look down at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we are called to live lives of personal holiness. But again, in John, John particularly roots the expression of that holiness in terms of love. Love for God and love for one another. Now, that shouldn't be surprising at all because Jesus, when asked what's the greatest commandment, said the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So it absolutely makes sense that John would drive home the issue of love when it comes to the question of are you living a holy life or not. In other words, what John is doing is saying, let's look at the culture of your church. Is the culture of your church characterized by love? Because wherever the doctrine of the church, wherever gospel doctrine is being rightly appropriated, that gospel culture should result. There are some who have left who have not rightly appropriated that gospel doctrine. Oh, it's been taught, but they're rejecting it and they're gone. Those of you who remain, will you demonstrate a commitment to appropriating gospel doctrine so that you live a life of love and therefore find in your midst this manifestation of gospel culture, which must flow from gospel doctrine, rightly appropriated? You following me? That's what John is looking for. He's looking for the kind of culture that, in fact, he's not just looking for it, he's commanding it. Live lives of love. Walk in the light. That's how you will know that this doctrine that's being proclaimed is being truly appropriated in the hearts of the people around you. John's call to holiness is a call to love God and one another. Therefore, in a fellowship of sinners, the people who have appropriated the gospel, they, they hear the call that, that there is this message of grace from God for undeserving sinners. And they realize, you know what? That's me. I'm an undeserving sinner. I can, I can lay no claim before God for his affection and his love and, and his acceptance and his forgiveness. I have nothing. I need that message of divine grace. And so, therefore, I believe that message of divine grace. John is saying, yes, believe that message of divine grace, that it might find expression as love in your fellowship, resulting in a shared experience of divine grace. So, a fellowship of sinners, you'll find a shared commitment to personal holiness expressed as love for God and one another. In shorthand, you will find people who live holy lives marked by love for God and one another. Second, however, you will find in the fellowship of sinners a shared commitment to confession marked by honesty with one another about our sin. Take a look at 
verse 7 again with me. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And then look down with me at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we'll, we'll come back to those verses, especially the latter half of each of those verses in the third point. But did you catch what's going on? This, this connection that John is making. If we walk in the light, if we confess our sins, we will have, and then he says, fellowship with one another. So it's, it's become horizontal now. What's the implication? This confession of sin is part of what it means to be walking in the light. In other words, yes, walking in the light looks like living a life of holiness, a life of love for God and love for other people. But we don't do that because we are sinful people. And so this life of repentance, because we fall short every day of God's law of love, this life of repentance finds expression as confession. Confessing our sins to God James in James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another. Scripture calls us to both this vertical and horizontal confession. Not horizontal in the sense that it goes through one person, a priest, who is the intercessory person between us and God. Scripture nowhere teaches that. We have Jesus interceding for us at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So when it comes to confession, we don't go to a priest to confess our sins. We go directly to God and confess our sins through Jesus Christ, knowing that he has opened the way for us so that we can go there boldly confessing our sin. But we also confess our sin to one another. Mutual confession. There's a shared commitment to mutual confession marked by honesty with one another about our sin. When sinners come together, committed to walk in the light, it inevitably means that there's no pretense. There's no pretending. There's no putting on a show. There's no trying to cover up the parts that we don't want anybody to see about our character. We're out in the light. <laughs> we're confessing it to God. We're confessing it to one another. Now, there's appropriate context for that. We can talk application, where this fits, and how it should look at some other time. But just will you catch the vision that the Bible gives us of mutual confession, the kind of culture where sinners can come together and be sinners, Sinners saved by grace, sinners experience that gift of, experiencing that gift of repentance in their lives so that they know they can confess their sin to God and, and be accepted because of Jesus. But the outflow of that is that we're people who don't need to hide from one another. We don't need to cover up. Everything's been uncovered before God. And he's forgiven us. And so therefore, we can be real with one another. That's what Scripture invites us to enjoy. And notice, 
That's exactly the kind of fellowship that John is pointing to. Because look again at verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now, if you look back, I know we're jumping around these few verses, but I'm I'm trying to make connections here that are really helpful. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with God, with him, that is God, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, now you'd expect John to say, we have fellowship with God. We don't have fellowship with God if we're walking in darkness. We do have fellowship with God if we walk in the light. John says, we don't have fellowship with God if we walk in darkness. We do have fellowship with one another if we walk in the light. Now that that fellowship that we enjoy with one another is rooted in our fellowship with God. It flows from that, but John jumps past that foundational reality of fellowship with God to the earthly expression of that fellowship with one another to drive home the point that if we are people who are truly walking in the light, we will enjoy fellowship with one another. That's what we're being invited to in this passage. Why why do we shrink back from it? I mean, let's be real. We prefer the darkness. I, I don't just mean the darkness of sin. And let me reinforce something here real quick. When when John talks about walking in the darkness, he is not talking about occasional sin. He's not talking about people who sin and then are quick to repent because they're convinced that that sin is indeed sin. He's not talking about people that are seeking to grow in grace so that they overcome these habitual sins that can cling so closely. What John is talking about is people who are walking in sin. This is my way of life. This is who I am. This is what I do. God's fine with that. That's walking in sin. Okay? What keeps us from enjoying this fellowship with one another? For some of us, it is that we would rather walk in sin than enjoy fellowship with God and the out, you know, the outpouring of that fellowship that we can enjoy with one another. We prefer the darkness. Or others of us, it's more an issue of we just don't want anyone to see any aspect of the darkness that we still deal with. We'd rather cover up. We'd rather not be real. We'd rather not look to one another, confessing our sins and asking for prayer. And when we do that, we miss out on this great gift. This gift that not only is reconciliation with God through repentance so that as we come to him in our brokenness, acknowledging our sin, confessing it before him, we experience something of what it means for him to meet us in that place of brokenness and and lift us up and, and, and look us as it were in the eye from scripture so that we can feel what the prodigal felt when he came home to his father confessing his sin. Not just that, but also Fellowship with one another is lost when we prefer to keep what is in the dark hidden rather than bring it out into the light of day. 
Bonhoeffer talks about this in Life Together. Let me read the quote. When you confess your sin to another Christian, the expressed, acknowledged sin has lost all its power. The sinner is no longer alone with his evil, for he has cast off his sin in confession and handed it over to God. It has been taken away from him. Now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now he can be a sinner and still enjoy the grace of God. He can confess his sins and in his very act find fellowship for the first time. The sin concealed separated him from the fellowship. The sin confessed has helped him to find true fellowship with the brethren in Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful invitation. It reminds me of a movie that I, that I recently saw. The movie's titled The Heart of Man. It's a movie that in particular is addressed toward men who are struggling with, um, with pornography or, or lust or anything like that. Although I do think that it's, a, it's a, by application, it's a movie that's message could be applied to anyone in any particular enslaving sin that they deal with. A sin that they would prefer to keep in the darkness rather than be brought out into the light. But in this particular instance, the, the film involves a man who is struggling uh, with, with, with sin, with, with lust, and a father who loves him. And his heart is broken because of the enslavement that he sees that his son is in. And the son ultimately just goes off. He's like the prodigal who leaves the love of his father and goes off into the far country. And this young man does that very thing. And he ends up ultimately in a dark cave, door closed, in bonds, being harassed by Satan. In the climactic moment of the, of the film, the father breaks in and rescues his son. Light floods the cave. Heartbreakingly, the son and the father look around and see all these other men who are likewise in chains. It's a moving film. It fits this passage. The father broke in to rescue a son. The light of Scripture coming from the heart of our Father in heaven breaks in, exposing the darkness in our lives that we don't want anyone else to see, but that he sees. And in love, he wants you to be free. That light breaks in. If we will walk with him out of the darkness, into his light, we will enjoy fellowship. What I wish the movie would have done and it didn't do, and only, you, know, you can only do so for much with any particular film, but what I wish would have happened is that that father and that son would have gone around and grabbed every one of those other men that were in the cave and they would have all gone together out into the light of day and just said, yes, we're free. They would have been a fellowship of sinners. And that's the very fellowship that we are invited to enjoy as well. When 
people come together, sinners come together, who can be that real with one another, who recognize that walking in the light means that we live without pretense. We're not putting on a show. We're not trying to be, you know, the perfect Christian, more sanctified than anyone else. We're just sinners who have received God's grace. We're just starving people who have been given bread and we're telling other people where we found it. When that's all we are, we can enjoy, John tells us, fellowship with one another. But then, finally, he tells us we are able to enjoy, as we walk in the light, a shared enjoyment of the reality of grace. So that's our third point. A shared enjoyment of the reality of grace secured for us through the cleansing blood of Jesus. I'm going to move quick here because we're getting short on time, but what do I mean by the reality of grace? Look at verse 7 again. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, that's that's a a verse that we can quickly kind of read over, but let's just notice a couple things about it first. First, it's talking about more than just forgiveness. It's talking about cleansing, Okay? Secondly, it happens as we're walking in the light. If we walk as in the light as he is in the light, we have the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us from our sin. The verb tense is also present, which means it's an ongoing reality. So this is the picture. As we walk in the light, as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from sin. How how do we put that together? What it means is this, that as we, a fellowship of sinners, confessing our sin to God, to one another, being real with one another, as we're doing that very thing, when the sin that is in us and among us inevitably surfaces... The blood of Jesus Christ continues to cleanse, to remove anything that would mar our fellowship with God and one another. In other words, God is more committed to gospel culture than we ever could be. So much so that he has ensured that the once and for all shedding of the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, has a continuing effect in our lives such that anything that would mar the fellowship that he wants us to enjoy together would be cleansed. Cleansed. Removed. That's commitment to gospel fellowship. And then verse 9, we have the demonstration of his commitment. Take a look again with me at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the cleansing again. It's rooted in God's faithfulness and his justice. His faithfulness because he has said he will have a people for himself. His covenant promise, he will rescue his people from his sin, from their sin. But then his justice. And if this verse is one that you're just so familiar with, that that word justice doesn't strike you as out of place, then by God's grace, may it strike you again now. You would expect to hear mercy, right? Verse 9, you'd expect it to say, 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because when you think of justice, you think of what our sin deserves. You would think that we wouldn't want Him to be just in view of our sin. Faithful, but not just. Because if He's just, then that means that we're going to receive, receive what we deserve. His wrath. We want His mercy, don't we? God, we want you to be faithful and merciful toward us. But, but, but Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. So wh- how, how does that work? Well, it works like this. It works because of the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid the price. Jesus went to the cross. He is the propitiation for our sin. He's the one who took all the wrath of God in himself for those who look to him for their salvation, such that there's none of that wrath left over for anyone whom he has saved. It would therefore be an injustice on God's part to show wrath to someone for whose wrath has already been paid for through Jesus. And so it is good news that God is just when it comes to our sin. Because it means that he reckons Christ's death sufficient for you now and forever. God is faithful. He's going to keep his promise. He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. Philippians 1.6. He's faithful and he's just. The blood of Christ has satisfied for your sin. God's wrath that you deserve, that I deserve, has been dealt with forever by Jesus. And because God is just, because he's just, his wrath will not come upon you. It's good news, brothers and sisters. It is good news. In a fellowship of sinners, you will find, you will find a people whose, whose commitment is to holiness, There's a shared commitment to holiness expressed as love for one another. There's a shared commitment to mutual confession marked by honesty with one another about our sin. And there's a shared enjoyment of the reality of grace secured for us through the cleansing blood of Jesus. Now, I'm going to wrap up with this. Last week, last week I shared, you know, my desire that by God's grace we would move from Lutchworth to the Grand Canyon when it comes to our experience of God's grace, our experience of gospel culture here among us. What do we need to do in order for that to happen? We've all heard the, the saying that the hardest road to travel is the 18 inches from the head to the heart. It's a cliche, but it reinforces our need to take the gospel to heart. Gospel culture will only be formed to the degree that gospel doctrine is being faithfully proclaimed and personally appropriated. The message of divine grace for undeserving sinners must move from the pages of Scripture through your ears or eyes, into your mind, and into your heart. And the fact is that for many of us, and I put myself squarely in this camp, 
The fact is that for many of us, the 18 inches from the head to the heart may as well be the 2,228 miles from Letchworth to the Grand Canyon. Everything in us resists surrendering to his grace. It seems crazy, doesn't it? But whenever we exalt ourselves, whenever we want to go our own way, whenever we say my way, not your way, God, we are in that moment refusing to surrender to grace. What's the answer then? What's our hope? It begins with prayer. It begins, continues, ends with prayer. I've told you before about the plaque that I have on, on this pulpit. Preach to the bones, pray for the wind. It's from Ezekiel chapter 37, that great vision that God gave Ezekiel. Preach to the bones, pray for the wind. We need, and, and by bones I'm including myself because I'm preaching to myself, right? Okay. Preach to the bones, pray for the wind. We need the wind of the Spirit to blow through our hearts. So that when we open God's word or, or hear it preached, we're cut to the quick. We see our sin in light of his holiness. We're moved to repentance. And then, and then, as I said before, we're lifted as God meets us in that place of our brokenness to, as it were, see the eyes of the Father in the same way that the prodigal saw the eyes of his Father and felt his loving embrace. The good news is that if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. The even better news is if you're not a Christian, you can have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Look to Jesus for your salvation today. Put your trust in Him. Begin anew. Be cleansed. But for those of us who by God's grace have been reconciled to Him, have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we must pray. Even if your prayer for personal renewal never rises above, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. We know that our Lord delights to answer that prayer as well. Pray. Pray in the reality of who you are. That's how God the Holy Spirit and God the Son are praying for you. Just say, God, here I am. Here's all the darkness I've been trying to hide from you. Here's all the doubts that I have about you. Here I am. Bring renewal in my life. Help me see my sin that I might look to you in repentance and faith and be met in my brokenness by your forgiving grace and love. And let's pray collectively as a church. You've got an announcement in your bulletin about pre-service prayer. I would love for you to join me for that. We've had a small group of people that have been joining us for a half an hour of prayer before the service. It is rich. Don't take an all-or-nothing approach to that. Come once a month if once a month is what will work for you. But come enjoy that opportunity to pray together for God to do a work here among us as we gather on Sunday morning. You're going to see a bulletin, announcement in your bulletin about kingdom prayer. Kingdom prayer is happening tonight at 6.30 here at the church. It's once a month we come together and pray for the advance of God's kingdom beginning here at Grace Church and spreading throughout the world. Pray. It must begin with prayer. 
It will only be as we live together with the gospel, not just ringing in our ears, but flowing from our hearts, that we will move from being the warm and welcoming fellowship that we are by God's grace to becoming the fellowship of sinners that he has formed us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray for your grace and mercy. We're thankful that you are just as we come before you in our sin. You look upon your sinless Son, our Savior, whose blood paid the ransom that we might be forgiven and cleansed forever. We thank you for your commitment to gospel culture such that here at Grace Church we might always know fellowship as fully as we can as we walk together in the light. So God, would you help us to live more and more into that reality, the reality of your grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.